welcome back to another episode of Glow West, where we chat about sex, sexuality and the body. I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and as always, I'm delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, my favourite topic of sex. If you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack to help keep the mics on, or please pop over to Apple and now Spotify to rate and review. If you want to get in touch, the Instagram and Twitter is at Glow podcast. So today we are talking about the intersections of South Asian culture and sexuality, you know, a really fascinating part of the world, very colourful and vibrant. So we want to see if that extends to sex and sexuality as well. So I have the perfect guest to talk to me about this today. Today I'm talking to Sanjita Pillai, who is a podcaster, activist and speaker. And she is the founder of the South Asian feminist network Soul Sutras, which is all about tackling taboos within the culture. She's the creator of Masala Podcast, the silver winner at the British Podcast Awards 2021, and also a winner at Spotify SoundUp in 2018. Sanjita is also the creator of the Masala Monologue series of writing workshops and theatre shows in the UK and the US. And she's also been a speaker at WOW Festival, Shameless Festival, Prima Donna Festivalis, as well as being a regular speaker on panels and podcasts. And she's been featured on BBC Radio, Evening Standard, Cosmopolitan Stylist, Eastern Eye, Huffington Post, BBC Sounds, Brown Girl Magazine, Women's Health Austria, Indian's Deccan Herald, and has been a writer for over 20 years. So we're very glad she had time to squeeze us in in the podcast today. So Sangeeta, how are you? How are you keeping? Hey, Caroline. It's lovely to be here. Thank you for asking me. Uh, <clears throat> I've been well. I had COVID and just recovering. So you'll have to excuse a little. Uh, 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 yeah. on that. Um, I, I think half the, the population has COVID at the moment. So you're, you're, you're in, I'm not, not going to say good company, but a uh, company. Yeah, a company that understands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. You can go back to bed after this podcast. That's, that's okay. Um, your work is, you know, you've done so much, you know, and um it's just it's just incredible so talk to me about how you got interested in this particular area because you've definitely flown along since you're in it so um how how did you get started um so i used to work in advertising for most of my life um i grew up in india in a very traditional indian family moved over to the uk about 16 years ago and carried on my career in advertising and i about kind of four years ago i think i got to a point where my mental health was really bad and I had a real down, like kind of in bed, couldn't get up kind of down. And when I was coming out of it, I started to think about what I wanted my life to mean. Uh, and I realized that I didn't really want to carry on working in advertising. I wanted to do something that I felt really, really, you know, strongly about. And it was this, it was South Asian feminism. It was sexuality. It was talking about taboos in my culture. Uh, having grown up in this culture and experienced a lot of this for myself, I know how difficult and how painful it can be to navigate some of these things. So I wanted to create a um, platform, really, for other women like me so they could come to this, hear other women talk about the stuff that they've been through and find strength, find, 
find support really so that's how I got started mm, fantastic and and the the taboos I suppose like what people maybe in the west might hear about um South Asian culture is that it would be very conservative and there would be things like arranged marriages still and I think that's probably changing obviously quite a lot as stereotypes are one to do um but is there that freedom for women to talk about sex or to experience it or is it a very controlled kind of activity it is very controlled. So while things are changing, like even in the 16 years that I've lived, lived away from India, every time I go back, I'm really surprised at some of the feminist work that's happening or the work around sexuality. So things are definitely changing. But I think there is still a lot of taboo, like a woman talking about sex is just still very, very controversial. Uh, a South Asian woman standing up and talking about her body and her pleasure is just, you know, extremely um controversial even now because you've got to understand whether it's Indians in India or South Asians second third generation in the UK or other might be in Ireland uh, we've been brought up with the idea that our body doesn't really belong to us that our bodies are for our husbands when we get married um, sex is something that we shouldn't even be thinking about or considering let alone having any ownership over so there's a lot of shame, there's a lot of cultural baggage that we carry. Mm. So then it's very difficult as women in this culture to sort of get up and say, I want to talk about sex. I want to talk about what gives me pleasure. I want to talk about my orgasm, you know. It's it's hard. It's really really tough. Ah, uh, yeah. No, I can definitely imagine that. And would a very, I mean, India is such a huge country, and there's so many different languages and cultures and religions just in that small. Well, it's not a small space, but in in that one particular country, like, does it vary by by region or by religion or anything like that? It varies between kind of. So India is like many worlds in one. Yeah. Like if you ever go there, you'll see, you know, it's really modern and really backward at the same time, you know, sometimes. So like in the cities, it's a lot more liberal, like Mumbai, Bangalore, Mumbai, where I grew up. Um, you know, women are doing pretty much what women do in Dublin or London. You know, they go out, they have friends, they have boyfriends, whatever. But if you're from a small town, it's a lot more... Um, it's a lot more strict or repressed or whatever you mm. want to call it. Uh, and kind of traditional value systems still play. Um, and depends on regions as well, like places like my family come from Kerala. It's a little bit more liberal than, say, the north, Haryana, for example. Okay. You know, But even within that, when I say liberal, it's still very hard. It's liberal compared to other states. Like um, there was a wonderful film from Kerala that I recently watched called The Great Indian Kitchen. And it talks about how women are meant to kind of cook, uh, you know, every meal from scratch. And I saw my mother do it and her mother did it. And that was very much what was expected. So in the outward, they might be more educated, but those kind of systems still continue to play out. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, Ireland wouldn't have been any way different. Like my grandmother would have just been in that kitchen all day long and, and just cooking. That was... That was her role, you know, so like, yeah, we have a lot of in common, I suppose, as well. And I think those similarities between urban areas being a little bit more free and liberal and rural areas, I think that that's true for a lot of places around around the globe. I think, you know, that conservative and traditionalism, it's, it's you know, it's easier for people to keep an eye on you in that smaller town mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. But you, you're you're now in the big bad world of London, which is just 
it's so busy it's like it just London stresses me out because I'm like it's just so huge and complex and stuff like that um and you you started the masala monologue so talk to me about that because that's such an excellent name I love it <laughs> thank you uh, I was like from my using my advertising background I was like oh what can I do oh I know what yeah. masala monologue um, so I was thinking about how I could get women in my community to come together and talk about these taboos. And I started the workshops. I think I did about 20 in the first year. Wow. Um, where women would come in. I think maybe a year or two, about 20. I don't remember the number. But um, we'd come together and I'd get them to talk about a particular taboo that had impacted their life and their personal story. And I'd coach them on how to turn it into a monologue and kind of get a beginning, middle, and an end. And over the course of that kind of two-hour workshop, we talk, really talk to each other. They'd open up, and I talk to them, they talk to me. Other women would, you know, kind of contribute. And there was a huge sense of kind of sisterhood and solidarity and support that we built, I think, over those workshops. And then I was thinking about how I wanted to kind of expand that. And I took it to do two theatre shows. I did a show at Rich Mix, which is in East London, and another at the Design Museum. Uh, so I took some of these stories that we'd written in the workshops, got a director, producer involved, and professional actors. And we created an amazing piece of theatre. So we had, a, I think, 100-odd women turn up to watch it. And the, the wow. response was phenomenal. Yeah. They kind of came up to me and hugged me and said, oh my God, you know, like I really see myself in some of these stories you've got on the stage there. So that's kind of how Masala Monologues came to be. That sounds fantastic. And I wonder then was there commonalities? You're, you're first generation, you've lived in, in the UK for almost uh, two decades now, but in at, like there is a lot of um, long history of migration from Asia into the UK. So there's lots of second, third, fourth generation. So did you have a mixture of people and what, what were the stories similar or had they changed quite a lot? Because there's a massive gap, I think, between like young people and their parents in, yeah, in the UK yeah. when they're of Asian yeah. descent. Well, of any descent, I suppose. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, always yeah. the way. But yeah. yeah, did you find that difference? Yeah, there is. There is and there isn't. And this is what makes it really interesting. So while, say, um, someone who is first generation like myself, I've come from a very Indian culture and now I'm kind of British and those are the kind of two mixes of, of, of me now. Uh, but say if you've grown up uh, in the UK, which a lot of the audience that I talk to is, um, their kind of issues or, or struggles are with what they think of as the root culture and who they are and then trying to kind of, I guess, find a meeting ground for their British side and their Asian side. Uh, and it's really tricky because they've been told, say, by their parents or relatives or whatever, that to be Asian is to be very traditional, to, I don't know, to get married, to have kids, to to work at a very, you know, s stable job or whatever you want to call it, you know. Um, and they struggle with that. And I think it's for them for discovering through work, my work and the work of other people like me that you can choose what parts of that culture you identify with. You don't have to, just because you're Asian, you doesn't, doesn't mean you have to be what your parents tell you or what your you know, neighbors might tell you in, in an area that you live in. You can be South Asian and feel proud of that, but at the same time, be a woman who is modern, lives in the world, does you know, things that make her happy. 
Yeah. And oh, that's it takes a lot of guts to go against community and, and things, and especially when it's such a, a taboo subject for people. And did you find that that came up in working with the groups women in the monologues that, you know, the, how they felt about actually speaking up about their sexuality and their desire? It's hugely difficult, Caroline. It's just one of the hardest things because um, I don't know what it's like with in Ireland. Um, and I suspect some of this is similar, but there is so much value attached to our honor as women um, that somehow we uphold the honor for our families. <clears throat> that somehow speaking about sex or sexuality or what we might desire makes it dishonorable, makes it shameful. And that shame transfers to your family. Yeah, we would have so, had a fair bit of that in Irish society yeah, too. We wouldn't well, have said honor maybe, but we would have said shame and, you know, disgracing your family. Yeah, and, you know, that's why exactly. we had the laundries and people were locked up if they had teen pregnancies and things like that. So, yeah, a lot of similarities. Yeah, so it's very hard for somebody who say obviously loves their family, but is an independent person and has a specific view on what their life to be to then come out and say that because the repercussions are very, very difficult. You know, uh, in some cases, I don't know, maybe the family won't speak to them anymore or have nothing to do with them. So that's the extreme case. Or there might just be issues within the family. It's like, oh, but, you know, you, you're part of this family. How can you go and do this or talk about this? You know, it's so entangled and complicated, this, this idea of culture and sex and sexuality being quite disconnected and different, but they're not actually. Yeah, very interlinked with everything. Yeah. And even the, the sexuality part there, like, you know, did you have any queer women that would have come along? Because, you know, obviously sex is one thing, sexuality is another. And, and to come out in a conservative world can be, you know, dangerous even for some people. Hugely. I talk about this on the Sala podcast. I think it's the first season. There's an episode on being queer in South Asian. So I have three um, queer folks. Um, I think two of them identify as women and they all talk about their journeys and how incredibly hard that was. One of them talks about um, her aunt saying, I wish you had died rather than come out, you know, um, <clears throat> and the other two as well. And it's a very, very hard thing in, in, uh, in a culture that has a very kind of binary way to look at sexuality um, coming out as anything different to what this very narrow way to be as a woman whether that's somebody who talks about sex like me that's hard whether you're queer like some of the people on my podcast that's incredibly hard so it's it's very difficult emotionally it's very difficult to live within family structures societal structures uh, and be queer um, and you know it takes a lot of courage so I really admire people who do that you know yeah they're, they're very brave to be able to just live authentically as much as they can mm. but then in, in that case if it's so hard to come out and I can imagine then there must be a huge underground area or people who are queer when they're in London but straight when they're back home visiting yeah. the parents and <laughs> yeah you yeah, have yeah. to kind of go back into the closet so to speak so like would there yeah, yeah. I mean London offers that sense of an anon I can never say this word anonymity I can never say that <laughs> I've been anonymous there we go I can imagine it's that one um but like do you find that then there is there like a thriving queer south asian scene in somewhere like london massive i mean there are 
<clears throat> sorry, queer events like almost every week uh, that I see. And I'm sure there's a lot more. And there's a huge underground scene. And I believe there's a lot of solidarity and support. So people talk about their queer families, you know, so the love and support that they maybe didn't have with their family, they find within these circles. And I'm so, so happy that that exists, I think. Um, and there's kind of like dance events and poetry and all of these things within queer South Asian circles. And it's thriving and I'm so glad it exists. That sounds fantastic and, and that use of creativity. But that's what you're doing as well through, you know, the workshops on the podcast and, and, and things like that. I think that's really fascinating to see how people translate, you know, the, their experiences into that creative side, which is which is fantastic. And, you know, like for those who haven't listened, what kind of areas do you touch on on the podcast in relation to sex and sexuality? So um, Masala podcast, again, is all about taboos in South Asian culture. So everything from like sex, sexuality, periods, porn, menopause, mental health, basically all the things we don't talk about as a, as a community, I talk about on the podcast. Uh, and each episode is a guest who talks about a taboo. So it might be somebody who works with a period charity. Uh, I had a South Asian porn star on there. I had um, somebody talking about sexual abuse. So, you know, there's different aspects to it. And within sex, I suppose, sex and sexuality, the queer sort of episode was one definitely where we touched upon that. I've had another episode where I talk about the Kama Sutra with somebody who's a specialist within that space. Um, I had the South Asian porn star who's also Muslim who talks about her journey of becoming that and then her family finding out and all the repercussions of it and how she's kind of made peace with that now. Wow. Um, so, That's yeah, not so sunny, also, is it? I'm sorry? It's not sunny, is it? Sunny? No, 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 it's not sunny, Leon. No. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. That's like the one person I know. <laughs> sorry, because she, she's gone back. She's become a Bollywood star. So yeah, yeah, she That's has. fascinating. Has. Yeah, because in the Indian porn, you don't really hear about that a whole lot. It's kind of like American porn or like mm -hmm. Japanese, mm -hmm. which is a very different kind of Asian culture. The Japanese yeah, are yeah. their own little yeah. world, like yeah. and, and how yeah. specific they are. But is yeah. that is there a big porn uh, Indian porn industry? Yeah, yeah, I think there is. And again, it's quite quiet. But you know, we're the second largest population on the planet, so we're obviously at it. Yeah, where, where there's humans, <laughs> there's sexual, sex you know. and porn. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of. Asian porn I think and particularly the the things that I heard about on the podcast episode that I was talking about is uh there's stuff like um like an auntie thing going on where like a men have might have a fetish you know it's, it's kind of made me laugh um and uh there's like the whole kind of um hijab fetish as well where somebody's covered up okay. so there's all manner of things yeah. within yeah. within porn itself that people are into wow okay 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 i gotta check some out just for research purposes <laughs> just to so see the the, uh. the porn star that i interviewed is called sahara knight oh okay, uh, okay. and she's on season two of masala podcast Fantastic. And she talks a lot about some of the fetishes she's come across she talks about kind of um you know being a porn star being asian being muslim you know navigating all of those worlds yeah, that, that's a lot to, to go for because yeah. people who stick their head up above the parapet or between the sheets in this case, like it's kind of hard to, like, yeah. I mean, the stigma as well must be huge to and, be so public. Yeah, and Sahara got death threats 
You know, that was really common. Imagine, yeah. Um, somebody outed her, revealed, I think there was a, you know, awful newspaper, Daily Mail, I don't know if you know it. They uh, published course. a picture of, of her. Yeah. yeah, of her front door. <gasps> uh, saying that this is where she lived for some reason. And then she had to change addresses or oh move God. away for a bit. Obviously, she's going to get a lot of hate, you know. I yeah. it was, It's awful, some of it. So the, the people do. So anybody that sticks their head about the parapet, I think will get a lot of judgment and in yeah. some cases death threats oh my god like that's oh it's just that should be viewed as like incitement to murder or something putting yeah, someone's yeah, door yeah, exactly. up there and and you mentioned then sexual abuse as well like how is that dealt with in in places like india because um you know i feel like well in many places there's so much victim blaming especially in Irish society there's a lot of victim blaming um and and we just like i suppose in 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 Irish society what we'd hear a lot are like horrific stories about gang rape and things like this and honor and, and things like that and obviously there's a huge cultural complexity behind the, the snippet headlines and the tweets and stuff but we often don't really get to hear that because there's not a lot of Indian representation in Ireland um, which definitely needs to change anyway but the victim blaming and and the the abuse part of things like how how does the society react to things like sexual violence by blaming the victims, mostly, usually. Um, and sexual violence in India is horrific. I think it is the most unsafe place to be a woman in the world today. That's how awful it is. And you probably read about, you know, the rapes in buses and the horrific, yeah. horrific violence that goes with it. And it still happens every single day. Children are raped, women are raped, older women are raped. You know, it's just dreadful. Uh, and it's one of the things that makes me really sad yeah, yeah. about about kind of where I come from. You know, there are a lot of parts of being South Asian that I'm really proud of. And this is one thing that I'm not. Mm. Um, how can we as a society in this day and age, you know, call ourselves civilized if this is what we do to our women, you know? Yeah, it, it's um, just, and, and not to the perpetrators. Like it's yeah, you never it's, hear much yeah. about the punishment side of things. No, no. I mean, they do you know put you know there's the odd case that kind of really hits the media headline like the one on the bus yeah where they get punished but a lot of people just get away because it's about power mm. it's in um, in a village if you live in a village and you haven't got much support and you know somebody in the power domain decides to rape you there's nothing you can do you know it's awful and women just kind of get on with their lives you know um i talk about and that's on a big kind of you know horrific scale but also on a smaller scale Sexual violence is rampant in India. Um, you know, I grew up there every day of my life since the age of, I don't know, even 10, that I'd get out of the house, somebody would grope me. Somebody would put their hand on my breast, somebody would put their hand on my ass. You know, it's just normalized. And you're told that that's just how men are. And you kind of find ways to protect yourself. And I'd kind of walk with this handbag in front of me so nobody, so nobody could touch me. It's, it's, it's incredible. And it still goes on to this day and age. Mm. And we're taught that that's how men are and that's how we must kind of find ways to kind of live with it, which is absolute rubbish because, you know, I, I, I will try not to swear on your podcast. I, that's okay. You can swear. <laughs> you can swear. Really? Yeah. fucking angry. Um, and it, it just is a daily occurrence in women's lives. And it doesn't matter whether you're poor and you live in a village or whether you're rich or you're you know you're privileged or you know one of the um, guests on season the last season of my podcast is Anushka Shankar she's like one of the most famous musicians she's 
Ravi Shankar's daughter. So she's, you know, one of the most well-known musicians in the world. She talks about being groped as a child. And, you know, and she has a very protected life. But she, you know, talks about going to a, a beauty salon with her mother and this guy used to feel her up. And she never t- said anything because we're taught that somehow that's our fault. Yeah. These are the messages we internalize. That if something like that happens to us, we must have done something. Because, yeah. you know, it's our job as women to kind of dim ourselves and make ourselves small and not wear provocative clothes and, you know, entice men. It's just bollocks, you know, it's just yeah. makes me really, really, really angry. It, it, no, of course not. It's just like what you're being taught there is like, you know, this this unsafe safety is your fault from such yeah. a young age. It's just like... Yeah. It, it must be them really hard to like actually embrace things like sexual desire in such a culture yeah. where you're viewed as like a slut or whatever for all this horrific yeah. stuff that happens. It's like yeah. how on earth in that kind of culture do you engage with positive sex, sexual experiences and sexuality? Like that seems really hard to move from, you know, a position of like, you know, you're like public property in that stage where people can do what they want with you. It's really difficult, Caroline, and incredibly hard to do. And I I wonder sometimes if I hadn't moved to the UK, whether I'd do the work that I do. Because um, living in India, it's even more strong. It's even stronger, this messaging of somehow you being responsible, somehow talking about sex makes you a slut. You know, and, and so you're either a slut or you're like, you know, this pure, you know, woman, mother, sister. Uh, one of the worst swear words they, they have in Hindi is somebody, it, it translates as a sister fucker or a mother fucker. You know, because those are the, you know, these are the goddesses we have. And then we have the other women who talk about slut. So, you know, it's, do you see the, the kind of disconnectedness of, of how we view sex as, as South Asian uh, people? So it's incredibly hard to then come out and then say, you know, talk about desire or talk about female pleasure, because immediately the assumption is that if you're talking about it, you must be up for it. You know, there's no. uh, So I'm quite careful as well, even if, say, an Asian man writes to me on one of my social medias, I don't usually respond because the second message will always be, oh, okay, you must be up for it because you're talking about it. You know, it's 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 really difficult. Yeah, that's uh, like just infuriating. <laughs> just it, like, yeah. And like we usually ask that question. When I have a lot of guests from around the world, and yeah, it's just a lot of the time it's the same all over. And it's not. I think in the West we kind of view that as like, oh, that's other cultures, and it's absolutely not. This is like. Yeah pretty much the exact same in definitely in Irish society but in lots and lots of societies but um and uh, yeah I just oh I know, rage I can, I can feel your anger I feel <laughs> yeah. like this as well and I've I've kind of trained myself to not get upset each time because mm. it, you know it's like okay well you know I've got to save my energy for things that are important yeah, yeah but no, um, but yeah. It, it, it is really really frustrating yeah and I can imagine then you know you mentioned periods and menstruation earlier I can imagine that is you know a whole different ball game as well I mean even like well period poverty is is one thing you know as well but like is it is it a, a stigma thing to you know be on your period is it you know what what, what does that look like so 
we're taught that when you're on your periods, women are impure. We're not supposed to go into temples. We're not supposed to touch things that might be sacred. And this isn't just in India. This is second, third generation women living in the UK, where they're told they can't attend weddings when they're on their periods. They can't go into the kitchen when they're on their periods. This idea of a woman's body somehow being impure is kind of coded within a lot of our culture, I think. Um, so it's very difficult. So if you don't talk to girls about their body, if you don't talk to them about what a woman's body does, uh, whether that's having a period or an orgasm or whatever, you know, how are girls then meant to kind of understand what's going on within them? So a lot of girls are hugely unprepared even now when their period comes. Um, and again, there's a sense of shame and stigma that there's something wrong with you. Like I remember in my own family, um, when I had my period, I think it was about 12 or 11. And my dad was off to this pilgrimage site. Uh, and because he was going to this holy place, I was put into like a separate in the kitchen. I wasn't supposed to come out and approach him or touch him. And I remember feeling like what on earth has happened to my body? It's doing this horrible, evil thing because it must be that because otherwise, why would I not be allowed to talk to anybody? You know, so it's that sense of shame and stigma again, you know. Wow, that's, uh, yeah, that, I mean, you'd almost think, like, it, it should be the other way around, because it's such a natural thing, you know, yes, what happens exactly. to exactly. the majority of, of women and, you know, our non-binary friends. And, you know, it, it's like, it's it just should be viewed as the most natural thing. I mean, yes. it's the cycle that gives life. I don't understand exactly. how it's not exactly. viewed as this beautiful thing. Obviously, yeah, periods yeah, are yeah. a pain in the backside a lot of the time, but, yeah, like, yeah it's just it's just wild to think of that process as impure what when it is the process that gives life and in many cultures around the world like the the objective is to like you have to have families you have to reproduce so like yes how, where is that disconnect like this between it really bothers me carolyn because motherhood is the ultimate uh you know aim for women and south asian women so uh for someone like me who's chosen not to have kids, it's a huge thing. It's like, my God, how can you not have a child? How can you even call yourself a woman if you, if you don't have kids? So this kind of worshipping of mothers happens on one side. But at the same time, where does motherhood come from? Our periods. Without that, you wouldn't have mothers. So it's such a disconnect. Yeah. It's, it's wild. Like, it's just, uh, yeah. I, it's like it's like virginal motherhood yeah. kind of thing yeah like, yeah virginal motherhood exactly. yeah you, like, got, you gotta oh, have the baby we, without the sex yeah yeah <laughs> so we somehow never supposed to know about sex or have any sex or talk about sex and then suddenly we're supposed to have babies you know yeah just like boom wave, wave boom. magic wand yeah it's it's wild yeah it's it just uh, there's a lot of education there to to be done and but it's even like i mean if you ask anyone like oh you know what do you think of indian sex people will immediately say things like oh the karma sutra so therefore everything's all liberal and lovely and it's like mm, might not be the way forward like i mean what does the the myth of the karma sutra mean to the average indian person so i'm so you glad you brought it up because i wanted to mention that we weren't always like this so if you talk about indian culture or south asian culture it is seen as very traditional it is quite repressed currently but our culture is also the kama sutra fourth century bc 
when the rest of the world was kind of figuring out how to get on trees or whatever, you know, we had this whole uh, tome on sexuality and human sexuality. It is very much a uh, <clears throat> refined art about sexuality. It is not sexual positions, which is what the West understands it as. Yeah, yeah, 365 positions. Yeah, that yeah. one chapter, I think chapter seven. The rest of it is about how to conduct yourself if before you approach a woman, like how it is very, very um, sophisticated. It's about uh, reciting poetry. It's about talking about the moon. It's about mopping her brow when you're having sex, you know, like giving her a sweet pan. Pan is like this betel nut thing that people chew after you've had sex, you know, so it's a, it's very, very sophisticated it's 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 like one of the arts so you were supposed to be a refined human being if you practiced all of these arts one of which was sex the others were literature music you know so it was in that arena wow and there's chapter after chapter about being a sophisticated human being it was written for men, so it's primarily from the point of view of a man, but it talks a lot about female pleasure. It talks very much about a man's duty mm. to pleasure his woman, you know, and that is not how sexuality is right now in Asia. Yeah. Um, it, you know, there are lots of chapters on, you know, if a woman is at this particular cycle of the moon, I don't know, her left thigh might be sensitive or, you know, like it's very, very, very detailed. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. And that is our culture. That's where we come from. So I guess somewhere along the line, whether it's kind of uh, the, the kind of introduction of slightly stricter morality or religion or colonization, you know, lots of things happened, I think, between that time and now. And somehow we've lost, I, my belief is that that's who we were and we've come out, lost our way a little bit doesn't mean that our culture isn't this. Our culture is very much to do with sexuality and to, to do with openness. But we've lost it along the way. I think, and I'm glad you brought up colonization there, because, you know, it, wherever the British went, they kind of tried to Im impose all their morals and their way of living and um, on different cultures. So I can imagine that, you know, that had a huge part to play because British culture would have been very maybe conservative or maybe you know very traditional family kind of thing and um I mean I, I, I we had about 800 years of colonization from the Brits I don't know how many you had quite a quite a few uh, as well a lot yeah yeah <laughs> so like that's like a lot of time for those yeah. values to kind of seep in yeah, into yeah, society yeah. and um absolutely absolutely yeah. and I think there was a lot of Victorian morality that was brought mm. into India by the Victorians and as we know the Victorian morality is very prudish so some of the things I think that I understand from my old reading is, you know, some parts of India, the women didn't wear kind of tops. They just wore saris and the British didn't like it. So that was a big hoo-ha. Uh, homosexuality was actually acceptable, I think, in older, in the, the Kama Sutra talks about it as well. The British introduced a law that only recently got repealed, I think. Um, even talking about the Kama Sutra, you know, they brought the Kama Sutra, they discovered, I say air quotes, the yeah. Kama Sutra, <laughs> <laughs> and brought it into the West. And uh, it was like this saucy tome, you know, it you know, kind of didn't really talk about the fact that there's a whole other aspect to this. And get this, they added pictures to it. 
because there, there are no images in the Kama Sutra that was written. It was a serious book. Oh, oh I didn't actually know that. Okay. And they said, oh, my God, you know, if we're going to move it along, it's a sexy tome that we want everybody to, let's just take a couple of pictures from a much later era and add it into the publication. Okay. Because it tells you a lot about the mindset, doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And the reductionism of it, you, reductionism. you know, if you bought the Karma Sutra now in, in you know, a sex shop, it is literally just hip positions. Yes. They, they've exactly. taken out the, the seduction part of things. Exactly. And, like that's a general thing in our society of like, you know, sex is often reduced down to how many positions, you know, and we don't have that yeah. emotionality, you know, the, yeah, yeah. the connection with ourselves and, you know, why do we want to have sex and with who and all that kind of you know yeah. mindfulness I, I suppose and that yeah. so it's yeah it's it's very reductionist but on, on the other hand like India's you know from what I think has been really yeah. great about you know things like gender you know and you have different genders and that's yeah. apparently been pretty yeah. acceptable for a, a long time and you wouldn't have used the word trans maybe you would use different language yeah uh, it's very much accepted. In fact, not only in the Kama Sutra, a lot of our gods are non-binary. Male gods turn into female gods and female gods turn into male gods. And, you know, uh, sex as well is very common in Indian mythology. You know, suddenly a god sees somebody and they desire them and they might be a male and the god might be male and the god becomes a female and then, you know, has sex with that other god. So, you know, this is kind of normal in our culture. So I don't think this... Um, it's an old idea, I think, for us. I think in our culture, definitely used to be. Um, it's a lot harder now because we've got a little bit complicated, I think, in the ways we think about gender and, you know, binary, non-binary. But having said that, actually, I must say that there are a lot of trans people in positions of power in Indian politics and in things like that. I've seen a minister, I've seen a lot of very visible and vocal trans folks actually in India. I don't see that quite as much in the West. No, no, it's rare and it becomes a big yeah. thing and makes newspaper yeah. headlines yeah. and yeah, 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 things like that. We're, we're definitely not, and obviously there's a lot of turfs and, you know, anti-trans sentiments in the West, I think, you know, a lot. Mm. Whereas in India, is it called, I know in Native Indian, in, in the Native Americans, it would be third gender or, or two gender, spirits. Yeah. Would that yeah. be the similar? It's called the third gender, yeah. The third exactly. gender, okay. Yeah. And is that like, you know, like, it's just no one picks up on it if they're in power. They're just like, that's just, you know, John over there or yeah, yeah, that's yeah. fine. I mean, they do make a fuss in the sense that I've read about it saying, oh, such and such person who's a trans person is now a minister of such and such or whatever. Um, but within Indian society, um, the third gender has been very much part of Indian society, I think. Uh, growing up as well, I'd see... Um, trans people you know they're called hijras in 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 mm. traditional kind of indian society so they kind of are seeing people who bring us uh, good luck to so when a baby's born a hijra will come along and they'll do a little dance and you pay the hijra to sort of bless the child uh, so they come to weddings and births and things like that and they were always kind of part of my life growing up like i i you know saw them in in the world so while i grew up in a very traditional society Hijras were very much part of it. You know, it, I don't think they have the easiest life. Like they're not treated maybe as well as they should be, but they very much exist in the world in, in cultural Indian society. Mm. 
Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I, I remember going to talk. Um, oh, God. And the guy was from one of the Polynesian islands, I think, mm. around, around that kind of area. And he was saying yeah, they had like multiple genders. And then mm. when colonization happened, they were forced yeah. to go back yeah. to, oh, no, there's only yeah. two genders. Because yeah, that would yeah, have been yeah. the, the British yeah. culture at the time yeah. when yeah. they were being colonized. And, you know, it was an interesting talk about how they, they fought to keep, you know, mm. their their culture and their and their genders alive. And I just think it's like what would the world have been without colonization yeah, i mean a million yeah, different yeah. things but it, it yes, would just yeah, yeah it would definitely be interesting that way and yeah but um and uh, on, a, on a more positive note before we, this turns into an anti-colonization podcast um what's going forward for you where is your masala projects going between the monologues and the podcast where what's next in 2022 now that hopefully covid is is on its way out hopefully I fingers hope crossed so. <laughs> <laughs> so um for me caroline i think the most important part of the work that I do is the connections from other South Asian women. Like almost every day, whether I'll get an email or a message on social media or whatever about how much it helps them. Like somebody will listen to my podcast. Say I was you know, in my car going somewhere and I turned on and I heard you talking about such and such. And oh my God, that happened to me too. And it's so heartening to hear you say that. Or I'll get messages from young women in in either in the UK or there was one last couple of weeks ago from India who said, oh, my God, you know, I feel less alone having found your work. You know, so this That's is beautiful. what powers me up. And yeah. I get a lot of this. And some days when, you know, I struggle with my own mental health and there are some days which are difficult and I get something like this and it just powers me up and it lights me up and. Yeah. This is why I do this. I have to I remind myself that, yeah, sometimes it's hard, but this is why I am doing what I'm doing. So I think a lot more of that, I think in 2020, in so I, a lot more of me creating the work that really helps my South Asian kind of sisters, helps them navigate their own lives, their own taboos, their own kind of worlds, you know, mm. uh, would be the, the, the ultimate focus. Uh, there's a new podcast series coming out, hopefully in spring, uh, Masala Podcast Season 4. Um, I've got workshops that I'm going to start again. So Masala Monologues is one series, but I'm also going to do specific workshops on sex or sexuality or kind of within the Masala Monologues kind of series. Brilliant. Um, I did one recently for a group of Sikh women, actually, about sex, and it was incredible. Wow. Um, and... They come from, I guess, traditional settings, but the issues that come up are exactly the same. Yeah. Because again, they carry a lot of shame around their bodies, around desire. So how do you go from that place to a place where you feel comfortable? Mm. You know, and and it's not just about single women, they're all married and within their marriages as well. You know, if you're able to enjoy your own pleasure, it's pleasurable for your partner as well, right? And it 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 enhances the relationship. So I'd like to do more of these, I think. Mm. So more workshops um, on specific themes, uh, more podcasts, more live podcasts. I did a live uh, season finale where one of my guests, who's queer, um, proposed to their partner of 15 years. Oh. Uh, 
So that was quite a, you know. Okay, but they did say yes, though, right? They did say yes. <laughs> okay, okay, good. <laughs> they did say yes, oh. live on the podcast. And that was like the first ever queer marriage proposal on a podcast. Oh, that so, is so lovely. So God, so the pressure is on for everyone else yeah, to match yeah, that yeah. now. Exactly. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so. fantastic. Yeah, you can't be a live podcast. It's just, oh, yeah. Isn't yeah. it just an... You know, I miss it, so I yeah. hope I can do more of those. We've gotten one so far for Glow West, and then we had to cancel the others thanks to COVID. So we're hoping 2022 is the year of live yeah. podcasts. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll get there. But it, it, this is just—it's it, been absolutely fantastic talking to you, and I just think it, it, it's great to learn about all those other cultures and actually find that they're not really that different to they're all not. all the others. So just those common threads of you know shame and. and taboo and battling through all all that to find authenticity so it's yeah we, we always have a lot more in common than, than we think so um thank you so so much for coming on today and where can people find you if they want to have a listen to your podcast or get in touch or go to your workshops or just generally follow you being a badass <laughs> <laughs> i'd love for people to get in touch um if you go to my website which is www.soulsutras.co.uk i'm on social media i'm on instagram as soul underscore sutras i'm on twitter as soul sutras um Email at soulsutras.co.uk if you'd like to drop me a line uh, and chat about anything or ask me any questions about some of the things we've talked about with Caroline today or anything else, feel free. I'd love to hear from you. So follow my work, support me because that's what I live on. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll put a link to your website in the show notes as well for, for anyone that needs it there. So Sangeeti, it's just been absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much. And go back to bed and rest after <laughs> like COVID times and stuff like that and mind yourself. So thank you no, so much. Thank you for having me. This is the first podcast in Ireland that I've done. Oh wow. Um, it's like so to pop your cherry. Anything. Yeah, Irish cherry pop. <laughs> Fantastic. Pop. So oh. really happy to reach you know another audience um and yeah thank you so much for having me on your podcast caroline thank you so much and thank you to all my listeners for tuning in as well and coming along with us on all the journeys that we go through and hopefully i will see you live in 2022 um and we, we will make some fun plans so thanks mel and i'll chat to you next time <laughs> <laughs>